You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. The following audio drama is a production of 63 Audio and the Narada Radio Company, a proud member of the all-new Mutual Audio Network. Taken from the pages of magazines your grandfather used to hide from your grandmother, this is Pulpery Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. This is a tale of America's pastime, the good old game of baseball, or more specifically, a little behind-the-scenes peek at how a big league baseball player used to get recruited for a team. We're looking at things from the lighter side tonight, with a very funny story called Anything to Oblige, penned by Samuel G. Camp. It appeared in the June 19, 1920 issue of All Story Weekly magazine, long before the days of computerized statistics, corporate baseball, and ballparks named after food. If you've been with us for our previous episodes of Pulp Pre-Theater, you'll know we have been bringing you a wide variety of pulp fiction genres for your listening pleasure. In our first eight episodes, we ran the gamut from science fiction to a tale of the jungle. After this episode, there are three more remaining in our first season, and we hope you'll come back to hear our tales of war, espionage, and romance. But our story for tonight is one of sports, specifically baseball. And we'll begin right after this brief word. You're listening to Pulpery Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. Well, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Thursday nights are for comedy on the Turnbuckle Television Cartel with that zany gang of serfs and vassals on The Medieval Office. Yay, verily, it's a new dark age of hilarity when Burp and Dink get into their usual brand of trouble. The abacus is down. Dink, what do you mean the abacus is down? Don't tell me the abacus is down. Uh, Burp, the abacus is down. I said, don't tell me. <laughs> Can we get an AT guy? Nope. He just got over the plague. He's parchmented solid for weeks. Oh, shit. Well, you'll just have to count on your fingers and toes until the bloody abacus can get serviced. I can't. Remember, Led McWinkle chopped off two of my fingers last week for allegedly fondling his daughter's... Uh, Love apples. (laughs) Well, go get your sodding brother then, like last time. Has he got ten full fingers? Uh, Yeah, but only one foot. He kicked. Kicked a night, yes, I remember. Zounds and bloody curses. My ten-year-old son could fix that abacus. Yeah? But his mum shipped him off to the children's crusade for the summer holidays. Remember, that's Comedy Night Thursday and The Medieval Office, right after Campy the Magic Water Dolphin. Set your sundials for laughter on TTC. 
Welcome back to Pulpery Theater and tonight's tale of baseball, Anything to Oblige, by Samuel G. Camp. Joe Lathrop is our storyteller tonight. He's a scout for the Toledo Blue Sox, and he's just arrived in Philadelphia with a new pitcher in tow. Leading this nervous young man by the arm, Joe now stands before the manager of the team, John McGowan, in the manager's room at the team's hotel. Hiya, Chief. Meet Rudolph Van Rensselaer, your new Southpaw pitcher. Rudolph, meet John McGowan, your new manager. Glad to meet you, Rudolph. Yes, sir. Likewise, I'm sure. Glad to meet you, too. Well, that makes three of us. And my responsibility ends here. How do you feel, Rudolph? Feel like working tomorrow? Sure, if you want me to. Oh, anything to oblige. Well, uh... Rudolph, if you feel like tearing yourself away from us and going up to your room or like that, son, well, there won't be any hard feelings. All righty, I can do that. Well, Joe, I see you put it over. Yeah, I did that. And now, if it's all the same to you, John, I kind of like a little vacation or something. I feel all sort of worn out and nervous. I need a rest. Why, now that you speak of it, you do look kind of bad, Joe. You're a wonderful observer, Chief. You've got a great pair of eyes. Most people wouldn't notice it. Now, Joe... Now, while Rudolph and the Chief had been gassing back and forth earlier, I'd lined up in front of the mirror, and here's what I saw big black circles, an inch deep under my eyes. If I'd passed a man on the street that had the same kind of look that I had, I'd tell the first cop I met that there was a nut loose a little ways back, and he'd better get busy before there was a murder or something. My cheeks were all sort of hollowed out and caved in, and I needed a shave. My hair was messed up every which ways, and when I tried to smooth it out, my hand shimmied so much I mustered up worse. I had on a bow tie, which is generally worn horizontal by the best dressers, but mine was perpendicular. Yes, sir, Chief, you certainly are a great hand for noticing little things. No doubt, if you went to the circus, you'd notice the elephant before you ran into him, and he threw you for a goal. Joe, why, I've never heard you talk this way before. Did something happen? Tell me. All right, I'll tell you, but I'll tell you this first. Take a little tip from me, Chief. Don't take any stock in what that big Dutch cheese, Rudolf Van Rensselaer, told you about his feeling all right to go in there and pitch tomorrow. Make him show you something first. He only said it to oblige you. How do you mean? I mean what I say. He only said it to oblige you. If he'd had neuritis in both arms and ten broken fingers, he'd have said the same thing. Anything to oblige. Anything. Oh, now, I don't believe... Listen, Chief, I'm going to tell you something. If this bird, Rudolph, had one glass eye, and one that was natural, and you came along and asked him for an eye without specifying, he'd give you the good one. He's the most obliging person on Earth, and so thoughtful of the feelings of others. You'd be surprised what... If you know anything, let's hear it. Let's get together. All right, I'll tell you. But I'll tell you this first. If this hadn't been a case of get the man or get out of the business, I wouldn't have gone and mixed into one of these affairs of the heart the way I did. 
Not that I have anything against such things. If a couple of people want to have one of these affairs of the heart, I consider it nobody's funeral but their own. And it usually works out that way. Nine times out of ten, I'm right. But here was a situation where it was strictly up to me to either come through or hunt up a job. The chief had sent me out on a couple of bone-hunting expeditions for the Blue Sox, and I'd fallen down on the job both times. I won't go into any of the details, but I will say, of course, that it wasn't through any fault of mine. I'm just an ordinary human being, and miracles are out of my line. But that didn't make any difference to the chief. He couldn't make any allowances because the Blue Sox, as a pennant possibility, were going into the discard pile for want of a reliable southpaw. We simply had to dig up a regular big league left-handed pitcher from somewhere, or else watch the World Series from the grandstand. Both of these earlier trips I'd made had been for the purpose of filling this hole in the Blue Sox lineup, and both times I'd come home without the bacon. And when, shortly afterward, the chief got wind of this fellow Rudolph Van Rensselaer, he put it to me in words that even a child can understand. I've got the lowdown on this man Van Rensselaer, and you don't have to worry about whether he's good or not. I'll take my chances on that. All you've got to do is sign him. Just bring him in. And Joe, if you don't, well, I'll do what I can for you, but... You know how the owners feel about you after you booted your chance of grabbing those other two left-handers. I'm sorry, Joe, but that's the way it is. Do you follow me? I'm right on top of you, Chief. Don't say another word. So long. It may be for days, or it may be forever. Lymanville. Next stop, Lymanville, Pennsylvania. Going to Lymanville, mister? That's what my ticket says. Well, you better grab your satchel and stand close to the door, mister, because the Lymanville stop is a quicker. None too many souls going to Lymanville, are there? You could say that. Here's the first one going there purpose in three years, I recollect. Well, here we are. Stand by for Lymanville! That conductor wasn't kidding. At a guess, there are about 5,000 people in the world who have heard of Lymanville, and they're the people who live there. Anyway, I reached this charming burg along about late in the afternoon. The dope I had on this Van Rensselaer character was that the boy wonder was pitching for Lymanville in the Triple B League. I figured that eventually I'd have to talk turkey with the Lymanville manager, but first... I wanted to have a little heart-to-heart -heart with Rudolph. Something I'd learned from experience was that it didn't pay to advertise. So when I registered at the hotel, I sort of handed out the idea I was selling plows or flivers or some other agricultural implement. You'll be in room five, Mr. Lathrop. Uh, you say you're in the novelty line. No, not novelties. Model T's, Flivers, Fords. Oh, no need to shout, young feller. I ain't deep. Just, ma just making sure, friend. I was told to look up a fella named Van Rensselaer. Was in the market for a new car. Know where I can find him? Uh, Rudolph? In the market for a new car? 
I didn't even know that boy could drive. Hmm. I don't know myself, friend. Which brings me back to the original question. Know where I can find him. After a little more of this type of confab, I was able to squeeze the dope out of the desk clerk that Rudolph Van Rensselaer was living at a rooming house run by a Mrs. Platt. Mrs. Platt, when she came to the door, pointed her thumb and said she guessed Rudolph was out back in the hammock. Oh, I sure do envy these fellas who can be dead to the world in seconds flat, like they don't have a thing in the world to worry them. Well, when I shook Rudolph out of it, he showed right away that the old brain was right in there working, just as smooth and as easy as oil, and quick, too. I, I guess I must have been asleep. Well, son, I'd sure hate to get into a guessing contest with you. Rudolph Van Rensselaer, I'm Joe Lathrop, a scout for the Blue Sox. Joe Lathrop? The old White Sox backstop? I, I, I remember hearing about you. Thanks, son. When you've been off the billboards a while, every little bit helps. But getting down to business, you haven't got a fountain pen handy, have you? What for? You're going to sign with the Blue Sox, and I forgot and left mine at home. The Blue Sox? You heard me. Me? Pitch for the Blue Sox? Well, that's the intention, anyway. Of course... Oh, oh, oh gee. Can you beat that? Ain't that just my luck? This sudden attitude uh, started giving me a sinking feeling, so I asked him what was the matter. I can't. I'm all sewed up. What do you mean, all sewed up? Have you signed with some other ball club in the big show? N no. Well, that makes me feel better. Hey, wait. What are you blushing about? Well, uh, well... Well, I'm gonna be married. <laughs> You're listening to Pulpery Theater and the Narada Radio Company's presentation of Samuel G. Camp's story, Anything to Oblige. We'll be back with Act Two of our play in just a moment. At the old ball game. As a special feature of Pulpery Theater, we are bringing to our studio the very knowledgeable Stanley Whipcord, more commonly known as Mr. Where Are They Now, who is here to tell us about more of those lost celebrities of generations past. Stanley, welcome to our show, and what do you have for us today? Hello. Thank you. It's good to be here. Today I'm here to tell you about three of the most famous people of a generation ago who found fame or infamy in some cases, but then fell out of favor with the public, who became yesterday's news, who were a flash in the pan, who... Yes, Stanley, I think we all get the picture. Can we move on to the first forgotten celebrity? Of course. Well, I received a letter from a lady in Fresno who asks, Whatever happened to Ramon Ramos, who put out a line of Mexican-style cookies? She's referring, of course, to Famos Ramos whose delicious Mexican wedding cookie line was indeed famos throughout most of the 1980s. 
Those lighter-than-air confections with a cinnamon flavoring were indeed a favorite in many an American household and not only at weddings. I remember them myself, Stanley, and ate enough of them to know that they may have seemed lighter than air, but put enough of them together in your stomach and they'll suddenly seem heavy enough. <laughs> can you tell us what happened to Famos Ramos? Indeed, I can. Ramon Ramos got sued by the company that produced a cookie with a similar name. He lost the suit and went bankrupt. A few years later, he tried a comeback with a cookie called Unknown Ramon, but it didn't catch on the same way. The last I heard, Ramon was working in a grocery store bake shop, drawing clown faces on cakes with colored icing. A sad story indeed. Well, who's next on your list, Stanley? A man in Toledo wrote to me, asking, Whatever happened to Giancarlo Vassellini? He's referring, of course, to the Giancarlo Vassellini, who, at the tender age of ten, became the bass soloist for the New York Metropolitan Opera. He became famous when he broke the world record for singing the lowest note ever, a low E more than two octaves lower than middle C. I seem to remember this myself. He was 11 when he broke that record, wasn't he? In fact, it was two days after his 11th birthday. Well, Giancarlo had a couple of good years with the Met, but unfortunately, fame is fickle. And when puberty hit and his voice started to change, poor Giancarlo Vassellini found that his voice was actually getting higher pitched. He couldn't sustain his position with the Met, and by the time he was 14, he was completely forgotten by the opera-going public. How awful for him. Were you able to track him down? Well, Giancarlo is now 32 years old and working as a cartoon voiceover artist in Hollywood, so he landed on his feet pretty well. His voice ended up going so high that he was soon much in demand for his ability to imitate such beloved cartoon characters as Mickey Mouse and Tweety Bird without any effects added in post-production. Well, it's nice to hear a happy ending for one of our forgotten celebrities, isn't it? And I understand you have one more to tell us about? Yes, I do. This one's a rather sad one, and I'm sorry I didn't mention this one second, so we could end on a happy note with Giancarlo. Well, no matter, Stanley. We can work that out next time if we have to. For now, let's hear about your final former celebrity, whom I believe is Ricky Mooney. Yes, that's right. Ricky Mooney was a Midwestern teenager in 1979 when a strange electoral fluke got him elected at the age of 13 as mayor of Manhattan, Kansas. Yes, yes, I remember, Ricky. I wasn't much older than him myself in 79, but I remember hearing about it on TV and the radio. Wasn't his term of office racked with scandals? Yes, that's right. Who can forget Colagate? when Ricky was allegedly bribed by a major soft drink manufacturer to place a soda machine in every school classroom in Manhattan. Of course, being a minor, he was able to escape prosecution, but his term was ended early anyway when his mother forced him to resign because city council meetings were keeping him up past his 9.30 bedtime. <laughs> well, a teenager does need his sleep. What's Ricky Mooney's story nowadays, Stanley? The ensuing years have not been kind to Ricky. He tried running for mayor of Manhattan again when he turned 18, but lost by a huge margin. He ended up leaving Kansas entirely and became a stand-up comedian 
but unfortunately not a successful one. He's currently serving a 90-day jail sentence in Aurora, Illinois, for assaulting a heckler with a rubber chicken. Oh my. Well, that is a sad story, Stanley. And we hope Mr. Mooney will soon be out of jail and back on his feet. Yes, me too. He owes me 50 bucks for the bar tab he ran up at the comedy club before he was arrested. Oh, well, if for no other reason than he can pay you back, we wish Ricky Mooney a much brighter future as a stand-up comic. Stanley Whipcord, Mr. Where Are They Now, we thank you for being here today and hope you'll come back again soon to tell us about more of those once-beloved but now-forgotten celebrities. Let's take it back to the studio. Let's return to Lymanville, Pennsylvania, where baseball scout Joe Lathrop is already doubting the Toledo Blue Sox manager's decision to send him out to sign the redoubtable Rudolph Van Rensselaer. Rudolph has just confessed to Joe that he can't sign on because he's going to be married. And Joe takes up the story again. Married? (laughs) Well, don't let that worry you, Rudolph. There's lots of married men in the big leagues. Fact is, the married men make the best players. Or I should say, it's their wives that make the best players. So, marriage ain't any bar to service in the big show. Nobody will think a bit less of you for it. When are you due to step off? Day after tomorrow. Well, I was kind of hoping we could get away tomorrow. Uh, But that's all right. We can take the bride right along with us and... Not a chance! No more chance than a rabbit! Prunella ain't got any use for baseball, and she said I'd have to give it up, and so I got to. Besides, we got our wedding trip all planned out, Niagara Falls, then up into Canada. Prunella's got her heart set on it, and I couldn't think of disappointing her. So you see... Say, I thought you were pitching baseball for the Lymanville team. Is that the custom in the Triple B League to allow a player a month or so off for a honeymoon right in the middle of the season? There ain't no more Lymanville team. She folded last week, and the boss paid us off and gave us our releases, and... Then you're a free agent? I would be, I guess, if it wasn't for Prunella. I guess you've said it. Strikes me, son, that Prunella is the center of this particular disturbance. So maybe you've got the idea now that you ain't gonna sign with the Blue Sox. But get that idea out of your head. You are. There are several reasons why you're going to sign, and the best one I can think of is... I'm a married man, and I can't afford to lose my job. Do you get me, Rudolph? Prunella or no Prunella, you're going to sign on the dotted line. And then I foresee you going on a journey with a short, dark, good-looking man, which is me. And another thing. I guess I tore into him after that. I threw every argument I had at him straight from the shoulder. Here was his chance to hit the big show, to reach out and grab fame, coin, everything. And he was throwing it all away just to suit the mere whim of... of Prunella. Rudolph, where is your sand? Show a little determination, why don't you? And pretty soon, Prunella will come around to a more sensible view of things. I know... It's all as you say, and I'd give a leg just to pitch one game for the Blue Sox. 
But there ain't any use. Prunella's got everything all planned out, and, and I couldn't think of disappointing her. Anything to oblige, eh? I guess that's it. Rudolph, are you keeping something from me? Why, no. Uh, would I be keeping from you? Search me. Well, I guess that'll be all for now. But don't think for one minute that I ain't coming back. I'll see you again sometime tomorrow. And in the meantime, keep all this under your hat, okay? All right. By the way, what's her last name? Fitch. Thanks. I left the backyard of Mrs. Platt, and as I turned the corner, I happened to look back. Unless I was mistaken, Rudolph had fallen asleep again. Back at the hotel, I sent a desperate wire to the chief. For the love of Mike, what will I do? This big turnip is all dated up to get married day after tomorrow and then escaping to Canada for a month. And the girl says he's got to give up baseball anyway. And so what chance have I got? What do you think I am, a miracle man? Answer at once and let me know whether this lets me out. I tried to put the whole thing out of my mind until tomorrow, and it was just as easy as forgetting a sore tooth or the rent. Next morning, I got the answer from the chief. It read, Join team tomorrow in Philadelphia. Bring Van Rensselaer with you. <sighs> the way I acted after I read that, I guess people thought I was crazy. Anyway, I sent another wire off right away to the chief. This one said, Have men ready to start for Lymanville with cash bail when you hear from me. <laughs> Of course, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but judging from the things I felt capable of doing, it seemed to me like it might be a good scheme to be prepared for the worst. How you do, young feller? Hiya, friend. I was wondering if you'd be kind enough to tell me where the residence of Mr. Fitch might be. I'll do better than that, young feller. I'll tell you just exactly where it is. Thanks, friend. That'll be more helpful. And so I started out for the Fitch place. The idea had hit me during the night. I'd drop in on Rudolph's bride-to-be and see if I couldn't get her to listen to reason. No harm in trying, anyhow. <laughs> Mr. Fitch? Yep. What can I do for you? Is Miss Fitch at home? Which one? There's more than one. Uh, funny, but I can't seem to recollect the name. What daughters have you? Well, there's Geraldine, and Maud, and Alice, and Louise, and May, and... Did I mention Maud? Yes, you mentioned her. And Florence, and Prunella, and... Never mind the rest. Prunella wins. Could I be allowed to see Miss Prunella? What's your business? Well, uh, you see, uh, well, I'm on the road for a big New York furniture house, household furnishings, and, uh, stuff like that, you see? And I happened to hear that Miss Prunella was going to be married. So I thought I'd call and see if she and her intended have made any arrangements about buying their furniture. And, 
Well, I've got a mighty attractive proposition, and I'd like to put it up to her. I've always felt pretty proud of that line. It was good. Come in! Step into the parlor! Pernella! Pernella! What is it, Father? Guest in the parlor! I'll be right there! As if this screeching back and forth wasn't enough of an omen, when she crossed the threshold, I got the distinct idea that I'd just as soon take one on the chin from a heavyweight champ than I would from Miss Prunella Fitch. You'd never know the difference. She was a regular Woolworth Tower Among Women, Prunella was, and like all other imposing modern edifices of concrete and steel construction all the way. I rose to salute, and I never felt more like it in my life. M uh, Miss Fitch? Certainly. Well, Miss Fitch, on second thought, I won't detain you. I came here to talk furniture, but I find I've left my catalogs at the hotel, and I can't do business without them, and so uh, maybe I can find time to call again, but I doubt it. <clears throat> In fact, I'm sure of it. That way out. Rudolph. Open up! Rudolph, I've got the goods on you. How do you mean? I'm wise to the whole situation. I've called on the bride and I know what's happened. Seeing is believing, son. You don't want to marry this Fitch dame. You know you don't. You've been buffaloed into this marriage and you ain't got the gumption to save yourself. Although I can't say as I blame you. I've seen Daddy Fitch and Prunella. And Lord knows the rest of the family is to be reckoned with, too. Ain't it the truth? Well, yes, I guess that's the straight of it. I thought so. All right, come on, let's go. Go where? Away from Lymanville, onto the big league. Show your sand, you big jellyfish. Let's beat it. Oh! Oh, it's no use. I couldn't think of disappointing Prunella. I wouldn't want to disoblige her like that. She's... Son, for two cents, I'd kill you and go to the chair with a smile. All right, helpless. We'll see whether you will or not. What time's the wedding tomorrow? Ten o'clock. All right, now get this. Sometime between now and ten o'clock tomorrow morning, you're going to leave this village. You're going far away and you're never coming back. Compared to you... A rabbit is a fighting fool, and there's more nerve in half an inch of yellow dog than you've got in your whole blamed frame. Just as sure as God made little green apples, you're getting out of here if I have to use chloroform. We'll be back in just a moment with the conclusion of our story right after this brief word. You're listening to Anything to Oblige, tonight's tale of baseball woes on Polpourri Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game.
As a special feature of Pulpery Theater, we have sent our intrepid reporter, Phil Boyd Studge, out to the Museum of Natural History in Sandusky, Ohio, to interview yet another person with a very strange yet real occupation. We'll let Phil Boyd tell you all about it. So, from Sandusky, Ohio, take it away, Phil Boyd Studge. Bill Boyd Studge here, speaking to you from the Museum of Natural History in Sandusky, Ohio, about to interview yet another person with a very strange, yet real, occupation. Marion Wade Graveltop is a dinosaur duster here at the museum. Ms. Graveltop, thank you for taking time out of your busy day to speak to our Pulpery Theater listeners. Uh, Hello. Folks, I'm standing here in the dinosaur exhibit here at the museum with Marion. I hope you don't mind if I call you Marion. Marion, how many of these prehistoric skeletons do you have on display here? Oh, about 37, I suppose. I guess nobody thinks about this sort of thing, dinosaurs collecting dust, but do they get pretty dusty? Oh my, yes. Uh Uh-huh. And how do you do the dusting? Is there a giant feather duster somewhere in a closet? Oh my, no. Well, Marion, now that I take a good look at you, I see that you're somewhat decked out in a body harness that has a big metal D-ring in the back. Can I assume that when you're dusting off the big dinosaurs, you're suspended from the ceiling? (laughs) Yes. Okay, well, we're finally getting somewhere. So take, for instance, this gigantic skeleton of a brontosaurus. Why? Whoops! (gasps) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. It looks as if when I was backing up to get a better look at the brontosaurus... I stepped on the bony foot of this Tyrannosaurus Rex. Oh, my. And it looks like I completely crushed it. Gee, sorry about that. Well, let's move on. If you were going to tackle the dusting job of this Ankylosaurus, say, how would you... Whoops! Whoops-a-daisy. I certainly ain't Mr. Twinkletoes today. What was that skeleton I just knocked over, Marion? Velociraptor. That was a popular one, too, I guess. Just look at those kids bursting into tears. Well, Marion, we should get back to the subject of our interview. Um, how long have you been at this job of dusting dinosaurs? That was a velociraptor, a $500,000 fossil. It represented about three years' work to collect and assemble, and you demolished it in three seconds. Yes, and I think it's a pity you couldn't get something that wouldn't be so fragile. But while we're on the subject, how does one put a price tag on a multi-million-year-old fossil? Take, for instance, this Diplodocus. Oh, my, how awful. Do you have an extra one of these in the back room somewhere? Marion? Marion? Folks, the strangest thing just happened. The dinosaur duster, Marion Wade Graveltop, just ran off without any explanation. So I guess that's all we have time for here at the Museum of Natural History in Sandusky, Ohio. So until next time, this is Phil Boyd Studge saying so long for now. Welcome back to Anything to Oblige by Samuel G. Camp. When we left off, Poor old Joe Lathrop was ready to hog-tie Rudolph Van Rensselaer and physically drag him back to the Blue Sox manager. But he came up with a much less violent plan overnight. 
Joe takes up the story again. You're out at the old ball game. At 9.30 the next morning, a big, black, high-powered motor car pulled up in front of Mrs. Platt's boarding house. I stepped out, told the driver to keep the motor running, and went to crash in on Rudolph. Rudolph, you'll oblige me by putting your coat on. And your hat, too, while you're at it. Then you're coming downstairs with me. I have some telephoning to do, and I want you to listen in. Well, of course, Rudolph didn't get what I was on about, but he obliged all the same, even down to the hat. There was a phone in the downstairs hall, and with Rudolph standing by, I got central and gave the number, which seemed to excite Rudolph a bit. That's Mr. Fitch's number. Righto. One mind in a thousand, boy. Once you learn a thing, you're like the elephant. Mr. Fitch? Listen, Mr. Fitch, this is a friend. I said a friend. Friend! But never mind that. You understand, I don't want to get mixed up in this thing, but there's something you ought to know a bit's about this fellow, Rudolph Van Rensselaer, the one that's going to marry your daughter. Yeah, Rudolph. Mr. Fitch, I think you'll be interested to know that he's already married. That's what I said. Got one wife already. She lives... She lives... What's that? You're going to see about that. Well, I would, Mr. Fitch. I certainly would. Now, you human marshmallow, you know father, and you know Prunella, and if I ain't mistaken, they're the kind of people who take action first and ask questions later. Now, will you wait around here to be murdered, or... Let's go! Whoa, whoa, wait for baby. As Rudolph and I went plunging down the front steps of Mrs. Platt's boarding house, a little dame that looked all worried up and excited came running up the walk. Rudolph, Rudolph, it isn't too late. No, madam, it ain't too late yet, but it will be in about four minutes. And if you'll excuse me, what's the idea? Who? I'm his wife. looked over at Rudolph, and his face convinced me she was telling the truth. Into the car, Brigham Young. You too, Mrs. Young. We'll thresh this out while we're on our way, but right now, we've got to get going. And that's how it happened, Chief. And do you mean to say, Joe, that you had no idea that this fellow was married? No more idea than a rabbit. And of course, you know I hadn't. But I had Rudolph's number, and I knew that no matter how innocent he might be, he'd rather run than face Father Fitch. So would I. As for the real state of affairs, it was like this. After Miss Prunella Fitch got her claws into Rudolph, he didn't have the nerve to tell the truth, and he couldn't make up his mind to break away. And there he was, until I saved him. Mrs. Van R. filled in the rest of the gaps for me. 
I have a friend who works as a traveling salesman, and he caught wind of where Rudolph was, and let me know about this proposed second marriage. So I, well, you know, I wasn't too late as it turned out, but after Rudolph had gone away, I realized that, that creature had simply thrown herself at him, and all he'd done was to try and be decent to her, because, well, you know, that's the way Rudolph is. He's so obliging and everything, and of course, that's the way he got into this last trouble. He's so obliging. Obliging is right, says I. You have been listening to Anything to Oblige, the ninth program of the Pulpourri Theatre series, starring the Narada Radio Company. Featured in the cast, in order of appearance, were Bob Caro as Joe Lathrop, Phil Boyd Stedge as John McGowan, Dana Gonzalez as Rudolph Van Rensselaer, Derek Lutz as the conductor, Kevin Schuster as the hotel clerk, Jean Giggy as Mr. Fitch, and Nancy Bueller as both Prunella Fitch and Mrs. Van Rensselaer. Your announcer was Lisa Ayala. Anything to Oblige was originally published as a short story by Samuel G. Camp and appeared in the June 19, 1920 issue of All Story Weekly magazine. It was adapted by Pete Lutz, who also directed and produced this program. Tune in again next time for another thrilling episode of Pulpourri Theatre. Additional voice characterizations by Nick Womack as Burp and Jordan Brewster Campo as Dink in the Medieval Office Sketch. Lisa McGrew as the interviewer in Mr. Where Are They Now and as the Dinosaur Duster and Phil Boyd Studge as himself. Tune in again next time when we'll bring you a tale of wartime romance called Tall, Dark, and 4F. Take me out with the crowd. The preceding production was sourced from materials in the public domain, except where indicated. The audio play script and the production itself are original works and are the property of their creator, and thus protected by copyright. This production was pre-recorded and mixed at 63 Audio, Corpus Christi, Texas. Remember, Pulpourri Theater is your source for the best in audio drama. This has been a 63 Audio production. Sixty-three audio. There is a new SUV that's unlike any other. It's big because you want big, but you also don't want to worry about lousy gas mileage. And with the new Skeeter SUV, that worry is a thing of the past. Thanks to new hybrid technology, you can get more miles per gallon in your big Skeeter SUV. How does it work? Easy. As you approach a wimpy little car from the rear and start to climb over it with a Skeeter's patented action track suspension, a special metal tube projects from the Skeeter, piercing the gas tank of the car and sucking out all the gas therein. It only takes a few seconds, then you can roll right over that car and leave its empty husk behind, as nature intended. Yes, the new Skeeter is a hybrid of SUV technology and classic mosquito design. The Skeeter is definitely an itch you can scratch. 
get over to your Skeeter dealer today. But hurry, get there before you see a Skeeter in your rearview mirror. This is the Mutual Audio Network.